0: Good afternoon and welcome to the 203rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we continue the congressional COVID Calls with my guest, United States Representative from the Massachusetts 4th District, Jake Auchincloss. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, January 15th, 2021, there are 2,468 deaths globally from COVID-19 according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 23,395,418 cases in the United States, and there are 390,195 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States today. That's up from 386,577 reported yesterday. 13,433 of those deaths have been in Massachusetts. At this point, I would normally read an obituary and instead I'm gonna get right to the interview today and I will read obituaries in the second half of COVID calls today. So let me introduce my guest today. Very excited to speak with him. Jake Auchincloss represents the fourth district of Massachusetts in the House of Representatives. He was born and raised in Newton, Massachusetts, the son of a surgeon and scientist. From the moment he could read, Jake loved American history. After graduating from Harvard College, Representative Auchincloss joined the Marines. He commanded infantry in Afghanistan and special operations in Panama. He's now a major in the reserves. He won election to the Newton City Council in 2015 and topped the ticket in 2019. His favorite part of being a city councilor was constituent services and communication. He chaired the Transportation and Public Safety Committee and was a member of the Land Use Committee. And while serving as a city councilor on nights and weekends, he managed teams at both a Fortune 100 and a startup company. He led product development in cybersecurity and insurance, and he has degrees in economics and finance from Harvard College and MIT. Representative right. president lives in Newtonville with his wife, Michelle, their son, Teddy, and their labrador retriever, Donut. Representative Wackencloss, thanks so much for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. I'd like to start just the way I usually do, find out where you're calling in from
1: and what the pandemic is looking like there today. I'm calling in from Newtonville, uh, right outside of Boston. And what the pandemic is looking like here in Massachusetts is it's getting worse. It's getting worse. We are in a uh, uh, What President-elect Biden has rightfully described as the hardest stretch of this, and what has been most acutely concerning to me in my position has been the effect it's having on on two areas of the economy. One is public schools, and particularly K-5, and the other is restaurants. I know you have uh, been very
0: active in talking about how to get schools back open and keep them open in Massachusetts, and we're going to definitely come to that and all of your legislative ideas going into this new Congress, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't start by just asking you what it was like to be in the Capitol on January 6th. You've been in Congress two weeks and you've already participated in events that are gonna be in textbooks. That's really something. What was that day like?
1: I think if you had said to me a year and a half ago, hey, Jake, you're gonna be a member of Congress giving a speech on the House floor to impeach the president for inciting insurrection in the middle of a pandemic, I would have thought that all of those things were implausible. <laughs> so it's certainly been quite a 2020. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was a somber and momentous occasion. I took no no joy in it. It was really very sad in a lot of ways, but. On Sunday, January 3rd, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution, and before I walked into the House chamber, I spent a long time with my dad looking at that huge portrait of the signing of the Constitution that hangs above the House gallery. It's got Franklin and, and Washington and others just really kind of contemplating the brilliance of this American experiment, the resilience of our constitutional system uh, designed to, to make ambition counteract, counteract ambition, as Madison said. and um, and. Then to see on Wednesday, 72 hours later, that it can be also very fragile and that it requires defending, um, it was it was stark. Uh, but I, I swore an oath to defend all against defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic, and it's an oath you got to take seriously, and it's one that does not have any asterisks about it. For you know, unless the president will tweet something mean about me, no, it's a it's ironclad
0: it's amazing and the way you frame that that you couldn't have imagined a year and a half ago being in and then to list all those many things happening at once all against the backdrop of this pandemic and i i want to just ask you about that as well how do you see the connection between what happened on january 6th and the broader disaster that we've been living through of this covid 19 pandemic
1: you know that's a very interesting question and one that Somewhat shockingly, actually, I'm realizing no one has asked before, and I'm not even sure I've asked myself, I think the assumption amongst most people I've talked to has been that actually, the insurrection and the pandemic are divorced, that one is about right wing extremism and a digital environment that foments conspiracy theories and sedition, and the other has been about, you know, the the elements of of contagion in the globalized world and, and the incompetence of the federal government. And I'm not sure anybody's asked me how they intersect. I don't know that I have a great answer for that. I think my my thought would be that that we would have had this event, you know, imagining a counterfactual where there was no p- pandemic, but Trump still lost. Mm-hmm. I still think he would have done the same series of things. I'd be interested for your thoughts on that, though, Scott. I mean, do you think that – how do you think they're related?
0: Well, it, I to me, the two – I mean, I like the way you frame the counterfactual too, would it have happened uh, even without the pandemic, but it's it's hard to look away from the amount of disinformation in, in the system and the poor leadership that's been on display from the beginning. And, and you've been very eloquent about that and talking about the president and the failure of leadership. And he just had many more opportunities to demonstrate that um, and to look for that fracturing of society. It seemed almost that what most of us think of as a mishandling of the pandemic became an, electo- an electoral strategy that's right. for him. And I guess that's what I wanted to sort of get more of a sense for you, of the, yeah. the sort of broader political ecosystem that we're operating in here in which the pandemic has brought to the fore very many ugly things.
1: Well, he turned masks into a, a culture war issue, unnecessarily, of course. But he, and and goaded on by Mark Meadows and, and uh, uh, what's his name, Stephen... Um, his, his speechwriter, the, the former aide to oh, Stephen Moore, St- Stephen Moore, a yeah, former aide to the Alabama senator, um, goaded on by really his most right wing reactionary aides decided to make mask wearing a, a divisive issue rather than a unifying one. And it was partly informed. This sounds ridiculous to say, but it, it, it's true and it's been validated, partly informed because he thought he looked bad in the mask. And so he didn't want to wear one because he didn't think it made him look good. And he decided to make it a badge of loyalty to him. And I can't quantify how many thousands of lives have been lost and the economic and and social damage that has been wrought by that petulant decision, but it is breathtaking. If we had worn masks early on and if that had been demonstrated by leadership and reinforced rhetorically by leadership, we have been in a different place as a pandemic.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the year that that you had. In the midst of all of this, you were running a campaign. Um, What's it like to campaign for the House of Representatives in the
1: middle of the worst pandemic since 1918? (laughs) So I first got elected to the city council by knocking doors. I I did nothing complicated except every day, went out for four and a half hours and knocked on people's doors and had conversations. So it was at a personal level, Dis- very disappointing to me to not be able to establish that raw connection. And the the danger of that is that you start to over index on social media, right? Because every every political campaign is so hungry for feedback loops about how you're doing. And, and at the congressional level, you're not doing polling very frequently, you do maybe one or two polls. So you don't have daily or weekly or even monthly feedback on, on the state of the race. All you can see is fundraising numbers, which are only a very very rough proxy um, and you get some chatter so people look for indicators on social media and that's a that's a not a good idea because Twitter is not representative of the electorate Facebook is not representative uh, of the electorate at least the comments are not um, and I was constantly reminding my team constantly reminding my team we need to be very careful we need to be we need to not freak out about sort of the, the daily Twitter thread. We need to focus on what voters in, in Taunton and Attleboro are actually gonna be concerned about. So that was number one. Number two is, uh, it was interesting sort of arbitrage opportunities that it creates. Uh, political campaigns in Congress are um, very predicated on on TV spending, on, on broadcast and cable TV. And there was a period in March, April, and May when my TV consultants came to me and they said, you know, something really, something really weird is happening everybody is locked up inside okay. and they are really hungry for news about what's happening we're seeing tv viewership go up to about eight hours a day on average which is mind-blowing it's like two or three x the, the, the typical median now normally that would mean that advertising costs would soar too because you pay an advertising cost per point you know per the percentage of the population that you reach and so they're they're efficient. But Advertisers were pulling back because they were facing down the worst recession in a hundred years. Everybody could shop. Right. So he was like, you can reach you know 50 times more, not 50, three or four times more people for half the cost if you put up advertising right now in April or May. But that's way too early by normal political judgment to advertise. I mean, it's that's very early in a campaign to go up on TV. And so we had this debate that. No political consultant or campaign had had in 30 years about do you take advantage of this opportunity? We decided ultimately we decided not to, which I think was the right decision. But
0: that's a, that's fascinating and, and unexpected paradox there. Everybody's watching TV, but then nobody can shop. And right. so the whole point of the advertising, you know, th- that the cost would stay low. But but you're in the Massachusetts fourth in the Democratic primary, there is is the ballgame, isn't it? So so you had to really be. I mean, this problem of not being able to knock knock on doors. I mean, that was in the high point. I mean, that I haven't looked at the December numbers for your district, but I'm quite sure that the April and May numbers were horrible there.
1: The April and May numbers were horrible. Uh, you absolutely could not be knocking on doors, and uh, even the bigger problem for us was getting signatures. Uh, you need to get signatures by paper, and you know, you're not standing outside grocery stores in April collecting signatures. So we were mailing individual sheets to my supporters and having them mail back uh, the signature sheets. So it was a, at one point, this entire office that you're looking at was literally stacked high with signature sheets. I mean, wow, thousands of them. It was a logistical nightmare.
0: It's amazing and historical, and you've learned how to run a campaign under conditions that no one, and hopefully you won't have to run it like that again for reelection. Oh, It'll be back out on the street and truly. everyone will be... Vaccinated. Let's talk a little bit about um, the issues that you ran on and um, how you see the year ahead in terms of legislation. Where are you going to be most active legislatively, particularly related to the pandemic?
1: Where I've made my early mark and where I'm continuing to to prioritize is COVID testing for the public schools and for uh, and for childcare as well. Uh, there are so many reasons why that's my focus. It, it has been breathtaking incompetence at the federal level that has allowed us to get where we are with the lack of of surveillance testing in the schools. It's really, we have required school districts and school nurses and teachers and parents to become, you know, public health agencies unto themselves. And the damage that that has done to kids of all stripes, but especially kids from low-income families and, and kids in communities of color, is gonna be, I think, the greatest tragedy of this pandemic in retrospect. Uh, we're gonna ossify, if we're not careful, we're gonna ossify generational inequity. And in my district, that is a district with both very affluent and, and working class towns, I really, it strikes the very heart of who we are. And it's just not fair that there are kids in Taunton or Attleboro, or Fall River who have effectively fallen off a learning trajectory, but there's kids in Brookline or Wellesley or Newton who are in learning pods five days a week because they have private tutors and they're going to be okay. Um, that's no judgment on the parents who are doing that for their kids. Uh, everyone's going to do it the best that they can for their kids in trying times. That's what you would expect from parents. It's, a, it's instead a, a searing judgment of government incompetence at the federal level that we couldn't get these schools the support they needed. I talked to a superintendent who spent 90% of her time doing contact tracing. She's a superintendent doing 90% of her time is contact tracing. Meanwhile, the NBA started its season on time with all the contact tracing and testing support it needs. You know, what does that say about our priorities as a country, that we care more about professional basketball than we do about public education?
0: You see this as connected to a sort of broader trend of disinvestment in, in public education, or is this uh, about disinvestment in healthcare, care or, or both of those? I mean, so many things converging in this issue.
1: Um yeah, I mean it's become it's become almost commonplace to say that the pandemic has crystallized and revealed longstanding inequities. And I, I think that's true. That is in unquestionably true and along a lot of different dimensions. Um, I don't but what I I don't necessarily see this as capping off any particular trend. I just see this as gross incompetence. Like mm. that that's usually the I usually look for the simplest explanation. <laughs> and in this case, the fact that the president of the United States just didn't care about solving the, the problem was a big part of why there's a problem like if if in March or April federal government had done three or four things right now this pandemic would be a nuisance and those three or four things to me would have been one uh the vaccine and getting the vaccine developed in less than a year and and that obviously has happened silence science has done the impossible and there's a whole backstory about why that's possible and I'm sure you've done podcasts on it but a lot of basic research funding a lot of it happened in Massachusetts actually Um, number two is Right, take a blank check out and say to every single of the important life sciences manufacturers, there is no amount of money that we're not willing to pay to ensure that we're gonna hit scale on these vaccinations the second that this vaccine is ready. However much you feel like you have to make to get the whole country vaccinated, we are gonna pre-write the check for you. And we're gonna do it also to Johnson & Johnson and also to Pfizer and also to AZ. And I don't care if we're double paying, the return on invested capital for getting the vaccination out even a week early is so great that it doesn't matter. Number three would have been testing. And number four would have been mask wearing. If we had done those four things as a country in March or April, this thing would have been a nuisance by now. And we failed to do any of them except for the science.
0: Those points are all, um, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think I've heard anybody say the second one as clearly as you just said it. In terms of what was possible, I think a lot of Americans have forgotten what's possible under disaster conditions. Um, and we've never really faced, you know, maybe back to World War II, that we've had a national disaster of this, of this scope. And, I, and so your point there about the government's capacity to pre-write the check so that the real issue is just about
1: solving the logistics. The private sector is pretty good in a lot of this stuff. It just needs to de-risk the investments it has to make and you know we've spent i don't know the exact number 4 trillion 5 trillion dollars now in government money on relief and and are going to spend and probably spend more we could take a whole comma off of that off of that and have made it 500 billion you know if, if the president of the united states had, had said to the 50 biggest companies here you come come take a tour of our printing press we're literally going to keep this thing running and it, it doesn't matter how much this thing how much it costs you need to come up with the vaccine distribution and testing and ppe that we need And we'll prepay for it. It would it would have solved so much. And there's just not that there was not that leadership and and foresight.
0: Well, let me stay with this because you know there's a lot of erosion of trust in government. I mean, part of this is people. We don't want them to necessarily know what the government's capable of doing in disaster because that would mean we'd be having disasters all the time. So we don't want to have to bring those powers to the fore very often people are not maybe aware of that, but at the same time, there's a lot of erosion of trust out there in science, but particularly in science and the service of government. I feel like you're in a very unique position because you're coming into Congress and you are younger than the median age of a lot of people who are in the Congress. And so you represent, I think, for many people, um, you know, that that voice who can come in from the outside and say, hey, whatever the status quo was, it's it's not working. It, How are you going to take on that issue of trust?
1: Well, it'll really help to tell the truth. We've spent four (laughs) years lying nonstop, so we shouldn't be surprised that people think that there's a trust gap. And I say we as the royal we of the federal government. Obviously, there's a lot of people who have been telling the truth. But the key actors, the president and his enablers in the last four years, have just been lying nonstop. I mean, it's just we're drowning in lies as a democracy and the most important thing we can do is tell the truth. My constituent, uh, Dr. Walensky, the new incoming head of the CDC, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times saying, I will tell the truth even when the news is grim. And that's exactly the right attitude for elected officials to have. Just tell people the truth. You had mentioned that that trust in science is declining. I'm going to have to, I may diverge with you on that. I'm not sure that's true. I actually think trust in science is on the upswing. Science as an institution, along with the military, tends to rank pretty high in in public opinion polls. And I think that's because science, by its very definition, is one of of empirical truth-seeking. And we've seen major scientific figures like Dr. Fauci gain tremendous profile by just being honest. Uh, So I'd like to see science double down. And and I say that somewhat selfishly as the representative from what I would argue is probably the life sciences capital of the world here in, in right outside greater Boston. Um, I'd like to see life sciences continue to flourish uh, on the, on with the tailwinds of this pandemic and their response to it. Uh, I'm glad that that you brought up this issue of the divergence in trust in government
0: and, and trust in science, and I think it's a pretty fluid dynamic. I'm, I'm hopeful, like you, that with better science communication and leadership going into this year, um, people can learn to to trust again. I I want to ask you something about your background and something else important I think you bring to this conversation is your background in the military. And in terms of problem solving and also in terms of sort of learning from disasters, this is a huge problem in the United States, learning from disasters and then turning those lessons into better ways to do things. I'm sure that's something that uh, you must learn as an officer.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there's two threads there. Uh, There's in the military, there's the concept of an after action review and an after action review is painful because everybody basically takes off their ranks. I mean, literally, sometimes you take off your rank on your collar and walks through what just happened, what, what happened during the patrol or during the mission, what went wrong, uh, who was accountable and then how we're going to prevent it from happening in the future. And people hate them. People hate accountability, <laughs> but they're really effective. And if you if you make them a habit of, of, a, of a platoon, you get better really fast. You climb up a competency curve really fast as, as a group. It requires a lot of trust. It requires strong leadership, but they're effective. I, I think we don't have that habit in government generally. General There's a sort of an approach usually in government of a uh, little bit of CYA sometimes, which is not, not healthy. It's kind of the opposite of an after action review. Um, So we need to embed that mindset, I think. But I would also say that in my background, I've I've worked in business, I've worked in the military, I've worked in local government. And what those three things have in common, despite being very different organizational dynamics and having very different objectives, is they're all solution oriented. They're very much explicitly about achieving a tangible end state. Local government is not about ideology. And because you go door to door and people want their trash taken out, they want their roads paved, they want the schools built, Uh, you get very, you, you can get a little bit of oxygen, but you end up you run out of it very quickly in local government if you're just spinning tails. Military, same thing, business, same thing. Unfortunately, at the national level, politics can be very performative. And we've got to get away from that habit. And we've got to make it solution oriented again.
0: Can we stay with this for a second and let give you a chance to talk a little bit about your district? One of the things that has been so important in the COVID calls that I've done this year is really hearing about not just the national story, but the local. Nobody knows their locality as well as a house rep. Talk to us about who's done okay, who's not done well, what kind of help you're going to need this year in the Massachusetts 4th District. So
1: it's, ooh, there's a lot to say there. Um, maybe on two dimensions, one geographically and the other by occupation. Geographically, I I think I alluded to the fact that we're we're bifurcated. In the north, it's very affluent. There's five towns, Newton, Needham, Brookline, Wellesley, Dover, that have a median home price of above a million dollars. There are definitely pockets of need in these towns. I mean, Newton is the biggest consumer of the Greater Boston Food Bank, so I don't want to underplay that at all. There's definitely pockets of need. But in general, the people living in these five towns have been working from home, being on Zoom calls, and it's been a real, it's been very painful to have their kids learning from home, but things are going to be mostly okay, I think, for a lot of these families. They're going to figure it out, and they have been able to figure it out. In Fall River and Taunton, and other places um, that are more dependent on a service economy that already have had real educational challenges, it's it's really devastating, and 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 there are a lot of kids, especially who have been bumped off of a trajectory in terms of their educational attainment and lifetime earnings that is, you're not sure if they're going to get back on. Hmm. Um, having said that, though, that, you know, the other dimension here is by occupation. I, I mentioned that the district is very life sciences heavy. We're right on that. We're, we're, we're the eds and meds economy. Yeah. So a lot of my constituents work in healthcare. And so while maybe they've been on the front lines of this and they've been on the front lines, both of the public health dimension and the policy dimension, but also literally the the COVID care units, including my own brother who's a captain in the COVID care units. Hmm.
0: So your whole family is in this. I mean, your father's a physician, your brother's in care, you're in, in Congress.
1: My father's Tony Fauci's number two, actually.
0: No kidding. I I read that in a news report. Could could you say just a a little bit about what that's like? I mean, um, I'd love to have a hotline into that into that office.
1: Just that Tony Fauci is as hardworking and and as high integrity as people think he is. He really is a, just a a force of nature. And um, uh, one thing I would underscore that my dad underscores to me is this ability to create a vaccination in in nine months was not luck, and it was it was based on the fact that we funded basic research for years beforehand into the SARS virus, and didn't necessarily know that it was going to be useful, actually. It was based on people's ideas and some curiosity, but we funded it out of basic research grants, and here we go, something that could have taken five years has taken nine months. The ROI on that investment is incalculable, and we should remember that as we think about NIH grants and basic research funding in general.
0: Seems like an incredibly important role. I mean, I'm based in Philadelphia, Ed's and Med's economy there too. And I know the representatives there. I mean, they are really the advocates for science policy in the United States, you know, and really representing pharmaceutical sector and biomed sector and, and university sector. You find yourself in that in that same role. Um, I w- just want to, we're almost up on time. I want to make sure that um, give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the year ahead. And, and maybe if you'd wouldn't mind the exercise thinking about, you know, a year from now, what you'd like to look back on and say, that's what we are able to accomplish in that, in that year coming out of the pandemic.
1: I really want to be able to look back and say that we got kids back into school faster than it otherwise would have happened. Uh, and that we set it up so that the spring was better than the winter and the fall was basically back to normal. Mm-hmm. I think if we can say that a year from now, will be able to say a lot.
0: Representative Jake Auchincloss of the Massachusetts 4th District, Um, uh, thank you for sharing this with us. What an extraordinary ride you've already had in the House of Representatives. And I hope we can keep in touch with you. Thanks again for your time today, sir.
1: I appreciate you having me on. Be well. Okay.
0: We've had extraordinary conversations this week on COVID calls with elected representatives and uh, some of the same themes we heard today. We've heard earlier in the week when we talked with Representative Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania and Senator Bob Casey yesterday about the challenge of rebuilding trust in government, but also I just think the real hunger um, that I heard in those three conversations to get back to something that looks like legislative activity in a, in a normal political space not that there won't be disagreement, but that you can have ideas and get it turned into legislation and have it impact people's lives. Um, so really appreciate that time from the representative. I'm going to, um, and hearing on Twitter from people who heard the call and, and, and enjoyed hearing from him. So uh, I'm going to turn now to what I ordinarily would do at the top of the program, and that's to uh, read a couple of obituaries just to try to bring some humanity to the Still staggering numbers of deaths that we're hearing. Staggering numbers of deaths that we're hearing about every single day across the United States. This uh, first one was a death notice that appeared in uh, Scott City, Kansas, in the Price and Sons funeral home. Dr. Marvin James Farr age 81, of Scott City, Kansas, passed away December 1st, 2020, in isolation at Park Lane Nursing Home. He was preceded in death by more than 260,000 Americans infected with COVID-19. He died in a room, not his own, being cared for by people dressed in confusing and frightening ways. He died with COVID-19, and his final days were harder, scarier, and lonelier than necessary. He was not surrounded by friends and family. Arvin was born May 23, 1939 to Jim and Dorothy Farr of Modoc, Kansas. He was born into an America recovering from the Great Depression and about to face World War II, times of loss and sacrifice difficult for most of us to imagine. Americans would be asked to ration essential supplies and send their children around the world to fight and die in wars of unfathomable destruction. He died in a world where many of his fellow Americans refused to wear a piece of cloth on their face to protect one another. Marvin was a farmer and a veterinarian. He graduated from Kansas State University in 1968. His careers filled his life with an understanding of the science of life, how to nurture it, how to sustain it and the myriad ways that life can go wrong. As a young man, he debated between studying mortuary or veterinary science, he chose life over death. The science that guided his professional life has been disparaged and abandoned by so many of the same people who depended on his knowledge to care for their animals and to raise their food. Barvin was a religious man. He was a lay reader at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. He saw no conflict between the science of his professional life and the belief of his personal life, each enriched the other. From religion, he especially drew on lessons of forgiveness and care. Perhaps the most important comes from the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He would look after those who had harmed him the deepest, a sentiment echoed by the healthcare workers struggling to do their jobs as their own communities turn against them or make their jobs harder. He would also fail those who needed him the most at times, and he was still human with his flaws and limits. Marvin was a man of the community. His membership in the Anthem Masonic Lodge number 284 and the Scott County Shrine Club mattered to him for both the camaraderie of his brothers and for the good works that they facilitated, the most visible of which is the Shriners Hospital for Children Network. Even in a social organization, he chose one that centered the health and medical care of others. Marvin was a family man, both of blood and chosen family. He was preceded in death by his wife, Lottie Farr, son Justin Farr, brothers Everett Farr and Howard Farr and parents. He's survived by his children, Courtney Farr and Tamara Wilkins of Eudora, Kansas, Tessa Fansler of Sanford, Florida, and Scott and Tracy Burling of Scott, Louisiana, and numerous grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and other family and loved ones. A memorial will be held at a later date due to COVID-19. That was the obituary of Dr. Marvin James Farr of Scott, Scott City, Kansas. I'm going to read one more today. Uh, both of these obituaries have gathered some attention because of the tone, uh, the despair of these particular obituaries, the honesty talking about COVID-19. Headline is, Son's Obituary for His Father Shares Raleigh Family's COVID-19 Grief He Deserved Better. This story was published in, in the News and Observer of Raleigh, North Carolina, December 22nd, 2020. This is the life story of Gerald Katzen, who lived August 2nd, 1932, to December 14th, 2020. Raleigh, North Carolina. Jerry Katzen died on Monday evening, December 14th, alone in a COVID-19 ICU ward, accompanied only by the ventilator tube that was delivering oxygen to his lungs. He was not surrounded by his loving wife of 62 years, Judy Katzen, his loving children, daughter Betsy Katzen of Raleigh, and Larry R. Katzen of Denver, Colorado, his loving grandchildren, Carson Marenbloom, Benjamin Marenbloom, and Noah Marenbloom of Raleigh, and Julia Katzen of Denver, or his loving brother, Larry F. Katzen of Raleigh. He deserved better. Jerry was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the first of two sons to Nathan Katzen and Bertha Kalodny Katzen. He was raised in Winston-Salem, Miami Beach, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and graduated from Reynolds High School in Winston-Salem in 1950 went on to college at North Carolina State University, stayed at NC State to get his PhD in physics, then joined the physics faculty at NC State, where he rose through the ranks to become a full professor and where he taught until his retirement. He was a brilliant theoretical physicist who especially loved engaging in research and talking physics and science. His most noted work was in the area of curvature collineations. As a child of the Great Depression, he hated to throw anything away You never know when it'll come in use was a frequent refrain, and his collection included an assortment of old vacuum cleaners, toasters, pill bottles, jar lids, and garden hoses, among many other things, to be ready for that possibility. Our favorite was the box labeled Strings Too Short to Save. Jerry was always an avid and social exerciser. Into his 50s, he regularly jogged the outer track at Carroll Middle School, where he formed a large circle of acquaintances with the other regulars. When his bad back ended his jogging career, he became an avid walker on the the Raleigh Greenway around Shelley Lake and downstream on the Mine Creek Trail. Once again, he made a number of social acquaintances there, where he was sometimes called the mayor of the Greenway. In addition to his cardio, he did various forms of weightlifting and stretching his entire adult life. Jerry took great pride in his children and grandchildren and reveled in their academic and career accomplishments. He broke into tears of joy when recounting that his eldest grandson had been admitted to UNC Medical School. He loved when he had the opportunity to tutor them in math or physics. He loved that Judy cooked big dinners every Sunday night and invited the family over to eat and enjoyed getting together regularly with the family for birthday and holiday celebrations. In his younger days, Jerry was an avid water skier. He and Judy owned a ski boat that Judy won by writing a jingle for a contest, and they enjoyed taking it out on weekends. They enjoyed taking it out on weekends with friends and family. Once the immediate family is cleared to leave quarantine, they will gather for a private graveside service at Hebrew Cemetery in Raleigh. In lieu of flowers, the family has requested donations in Jerry's memory to the American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina. Virtual Shiva Minyan links will be shared at a later date. That was the life story of Gerald Katzen. Well, I want to thank my guest today, Representative Jake Auchincloss of the Massachusetts Fourth Congressional District, the youngest member of Congress. It was exciting to hear from him and his ambitions to try to make things better for his district and for this country. And I want to thank all my guests this week. It's been for me, an extraordinary week of COVID calls, and thank you all for participating as well. And we'll be right back next week. We'll start on Monday, returning to our discussion of vaccines and vaccination. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Stay healthy, and we'll see you on Monday, 5 o'clock.